Well, this is the third week of our series we're calling Meet the Gospel. We're basing it on the first five chapters of the book of Romans. This weekend, we're going to be looking at the number one sin that we struggle with in our lives. And I don't, as we look at this sin, I don't want us to learn just what the Bible has to say about it. I want us to do something about it. You know, there's an old saying that says, if the shoe fits, wear it. This weekend, I'm going to say, if the shoe fits, don't wear it. Okay. If the shoe fits, change shoes. Because what we're going to be looking at, this is the sin that Jesus attacked more often, more directly than any other sin in the Bible. And yet it is the sin that we most often justify and we most often accept in our lives. Okay, you have an idea what the sin may be? You have an idea? I'm gonna count to three. And when I count to three, I want you to yell out what sin you think I'm talking about, okay? As loud as you can. Here we go. One, two, three. Wow. It's a messed up church. (laughs) I heard somebody say smoking. I've often said smoking won't send you to hell. It'll make you smell like you've been there, but it won't send you there, right? I heard somebody say pulling for Carolina. I agree, horrible sin. In fact, I really believe if God would have given us 11 commandments instead of just 10, number 11, you do not pull for Carolina. That would have been the commandment. Here's the sin. How many of you said self-righteousness? Yeah, sometimes thought of as pride. I think if we were honest, we would all admit that we struggle maybe with self-righteousness more than any other sin. By the way, what is self-righteousness? Well, we learned last weekend that righteousness literally means that we have a right standing before God. So when we think about self-righteousness, I guess a literal meaning would be this, thinking that you can put yourself back into a right standing before God. In other words, you can be so good, God would be so impressed that he would declare you righteous. And by the way, self-righteousness most often manifests itself in religious stuff. Doing a lot of religious stuff, behaving a certain way, somehow you're going to impress God. I would say, though, a practical definition would be arrogance that expresses itself in judgment. For example, I am such a good person, and I am so much better than you, I'm in the position to judge you. That would be called self-righteous, also sometimes translated British, okay? But that's, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about this weekend. Now, Paul talks about this. He wrote about this in Romans chapter 2. Jesus actually addressed this subject in Matthew chapter 7. This is what Jesus said, a very familiar passage. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I mean, it's like you got a a big old telephone pole sticking out of your forehead and you're worried about a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. Well, here's a question. What does it mean to judge? It's actually the Greek word krino. We get our English word uh, to discriminate or criticism, even critic from the word, that little word that means to judge. By the way, let me just say this. Jesus wasn't saying that you throw discernment out the window. He wasn't saying that. Jesus wasn't talking about coming to a conclusion based on facts. Jesus was saying It is never right for you to make a rash and unfair judgment when you don't know all the facts. So when you get to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, don't do that. And it's interesting, it's a command, it's not an option. In fact, if you could read it in the Greek, it is a present tense command. It means stop doing it. It could also be rendered, don't form the habit of judging. 
Now, unfortunately, we're hearing this a little too late. We already have the habit. And so Jesus says in reality of that, the fact that you have a habit of judging people, you need to stop it, and you need to stop it right now. Now, if you have your Bibles this weekend, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And Paul talks about this very same subject. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen. And let me just begin by giving you a little bit of context. If you were here last weekend, we saw that Paul in chapter 1, the first few verses, 1 through 17, he introduced us to the gospel. And he says the gospel is based on the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We saw that, G- that Paul said, if there is no Jesus, then there is no gospel. So he introduced us to the gospel. This is what can change our lives. And we saw in verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to all who believe. So if we believe in what Jesus Christ did for us, the gospel, the power of the gospel can restore us into a relationship back to God. So Paul talked about the gospel. But it's interesting, if you get to the last part of Romans chapter 1, Paul describes mankind without God. And we looked at this, these verses the very first week of the series. He talked about the depravity of mankind, and we saw that it is a very ugly scenario. It is a very ugly scene, but it is also very, very true. And as you get to verse 18, 19, 20, and to the end of the chapter, Paul kind of describes this downward vortex of sin. And it's kind of this idea that going all the way back to the garden, sin was introduced to the human race through Adam and Eve. And then it just began to spiral out of control to the point that we get to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. This is what it says. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And what Paul is saying there is anyone can go out and look up at the sky, can look at the stars and say, there's got to be more than this than what meets the human eye. In other words, God is revealed in the universe, so much so that there's no way we can say there is no God. Man is without excuse. And then he goes on to say, talking about mankind, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. We looked at that the first week of the series. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And we talked about the gods that they had versus the gods that we have in our own life today. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and they served created things rather than the creator who is praised forever, praised, amen. Then Paul says this, because of this, God gave them over, and you keep seeing that phrase, and basically God's attitude was, if you want to disobey me, if you want to experience this, you go for it. I'm gonna let it run its course. It says, God gave them over to shameful lust, Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over, there it is again, to a depraved mind so that they do what what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. 
They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And so Paul says that, that, that society is heading in a direction where not only do people do these things, everybody else says, you ought to do them. If you want to do them, you ought to be able to do these things. But what's interesting about this list, it, it contains sins that are very, very open, very overt, very blatant. It's because Paul wants us to see just how depraved we are so we will begin to understand how desperately we need the gospel. But I believe that Paul knew that some of us were going to read this list and we were going to think, wow, I am so glad I am not like those people, right? Right? Now, unfortunately, when you get to the end of chapter two, there's a chapter break. And you should know, chapter breaks are not inspired. They weren't put there by God. They were put there by translators. I don't even think there should be a chapter break here because when you get to chapter two, Understand, Paul is still on the topic of depravity. The only difference is the sin in chapter 1 is open and blatant. It's very overt. When you get to chapter 2, the sin is very, very secretive. It's very, very subtle, but it's still bubbling out of the same cesspool. That hasn't changed. And so when you get to Romans chapter 2, Paul addresses our number one sin. Paul addresses the self-righteous person who has the attitude, I am so glad I'm not like those people. And since I'm not like those people and committing those sins, God and I must be okay. I must have a right standing before God. But this individual doesn't realize that because of his or her self-righteousness, they are just as guilty before God as anybody included in that list in chapter 1. So let's talk about that. Let's begin by looking at some characteristics of a self-righteous person. Paul begins chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, and this is a, re, this is a reaction to chapter 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment. Literally, it says this in the Greek, inexcusable you are, you who judge others. It kind of sounds like Yoda, inexcusable you are, right? It doesn't say. So, so the first characteristic of a self-righteous person is this. We pass judgment. And Paul uses the very same Greek word for judgment that Jesus used over in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He uses the word krino. But he says, we condemn, we find fault, we criticize other people who sin. But yet, Paul says, this is what I want you to understand. Deep down inside, you have the exact same depraved nature. In fact, verse 2, he says that we're guilty of committing the very same sins ourselves. Look what it says in verse 2. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? And the implied answer is, no, you're not going to escape God's judgment. You're not going to get away with it. In fact, you're just as guilty as the person who's committing all those horrible sins that are listed in chapter 1. So Paul says, listen, you commit the very same sins. We commit the very same sins ourselves. We just commit them in a different form. For example, we may not commit the physical act of adultery, but we fantasize about it, don't we? We may not steal money, but we have ways of juggling the accounts at work. We may not literally stab someone in the back with a knife, but we have no problem whatsoever verbally assassinating somebody with our tongue. We do the very same things. But see, we don't see ourselves that way, do we? So what is it that's keeping us from seeing ourselves as we really are? Three things. One, 
we're blind to our own wrong. I mean, let's be honest, we have blind spots. And if it wasn't for a few people in our lives who had the ability to speak the truth in love, we would never realize those blind spots are there. But we, we, we refuse to see ourselves as God really sees us. We have blind spots. Second, we forget our own weaknesses. You know, I've often thought at churches that maybe at all of our campuses, we have like giant erasers over the door, right? I mean, think about it. We come in here every weekend, we open God's word, we're exposed to the truth of God's work, and it goes to work in our lives, and it does surgery in our lives, and it convicts us of where we're wrong, and it encourages in areas where we're out of step and out of alignment to bring our lives into alignment with the word of God. But then we walk out of these doors, and I don't know what happens, but we get in the car, and everything we just heard is like, what did Mike talk about this weekend? I don't even remember. Oh, yeah. He talked about my wife's problems. Talked about my neighbor's problems. Yep, talked about my boss's problems. I'm so glad he talked about my kids' problems. I hope they were listening, right? We forget our own weaknesses. Third, we rename our wrong. See, Other people are prejudiced. We're discerning. Other people are defensive. We're setting the record straight. Other people have a short temper. We're passionately defending a principle. Other people cheat and steal. We're just tweaking the expense account. Other people lust. We're just appreciating God's creation, right? (laughs) In other words, we rename it. And by renaming it, it doesn't sound so bad. We can rationalize our behavior. Now, (laughs) that almost sounded like a crow. But I, I'm glad you like that. Anyway, now here, this brings up the question. Why do we judge other people when we're guilty of doing the very same things? Well, Paul says, according to verse 5, it's because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. He says, you're stubborn, you're hard-hearted. Going back to chapter 1, he's, it's like you know the truth, but you deny the truth. But I want you to notice how beautifully God deals with us, right? Look what he says in verse 3. Do you think you'll escape God's judgment, verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Think about that. Even with all of the sin in our lives, even with all of the mess that's going on in our lives, our stubbornness, our hard-heartedness, our blatant disobedience, God is still gracious to us. He comes alongside of us and he woos us and he tries to win us and maybe he'll take a little something from a message we heard or maybe he'll use something from an experience that we've been through or maybe he'll remind us of something we read in the Bible. He'll use a heartbreak, a tough time here and there and through his kindness and through his patience, he confronts us where we are and his goal all along is simply to bring about repentance in our lives. Repentance means you do a 180. You're heading this direction and the opposite direction of God. All God wants us to do is get to that point where we do a 180 and we start heading back toward him so that we can be restored in a relationship with him. That's all he wants. But it brings up the question, what if we choose not to repent? What if we choose not to surrender to God? What if we decide we don't want to be restored back into a relationship with God? Verse six says this, God will repay each person according to what they've done. And what he's saying is that every one of us, we're going to stand before God. And he is going to deal with the inward as well as the outward. He's going to deal with the overt as well 
as the subtle. And the result in verse nine, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. And just so you know, that includes self-righteousness. By the way, let me just say this. That is the message of Romans. It tells the person who lives a life of blatant sin, you're lost. It tells the person who's self-righteous, you're lost. It tells the person who's trusting in their good deeds and they're being very, very religious, you're lost. Paul says, that's why you need the gospel. But understand, and this is what I want you to hear this weekend. The gospel is about a relationship. The gospel is not about religion. You know what religion's like? Religion's like a treadmill. You ever got on a treadmill? I hate those things. You walk, you try to run, you do whatever. You, but at the end of the day, you get so frustrated because you realize you're just not getting anywhere. In fact, you're getting nowhere fast. I'm telling you, it is the same thing with religion. You work and work and work. You do and do and do. You give and give and give. You try your best to please God. But at the end of the day, the end of the year, the end of your life, you're in the same place spiritually. You're getting nowhere fast spiritually. You're not getting any closer to God. You're not becoming any more like God. It's all about religion. I mean, you ask the average person what their relationship with God is like. Do you know what they'll tell you? They'll tell you what church they go to. They'll tell you what they do at that church. They'll tell you who they know at that church. They'll tell you how much they give. They'll tell you all about their good deeds. But it's all about doing good stuff, jumping through the religious hoops, being on the religious treadmill. But you know what happens? Eventually, when you're on the religious treadmill, eventually you realize, I'm getting nowhere. Nothing is really changing. And you get frustrated because you realize this can't be the answer. And it, you end up looking like this on the treadmill. See, that's, that's, that's not where you want to end up, right? And that's why once you get a taste of the gospel, and once you realize that what God has to offer us, it's about a relationship. It's not about religion. All of a sudden, religion really begins to stink. Self-righteousness really begins to stink. Now understand, the most self-righteous person, the most religious person in Paul's day was the Jew. So when you get to verse 17, Paul turns his attention to the Jew, and he talks about three things that a Jew counted on to put themselves into a right standing with God. And understand, Paul knew what he ta was talking about because he was a Jew. So let me just give you these three things. And I want you to know, this isn't Jew bashing. This is just Paul talking about. You know, this is just as applicable whether you're a religious Baptist, whether you're a religious Catholic, a religious Methodist, a religious Pentecostal, whether you're a religious Muslim or a religious Buddhist, religion is religion. It's what we count on to please God. First of all, a Jew counted on his heritage. Look what it says in verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew. The term Jew comes from the word Judah. It means to praise Jehovah. And a Jew believed that since they were Jewish, that alone was enough to put them in a right standing with God. And so they built their tradition around their name. After all, they were proud to be called a Jew. You ever known someone that's just kind of over the top proud of their heritage I mean they're Irish and they love to let you know they wear t-shirts to talk about their Irish right or maybe they're from Italy maybe they're Italian or, 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 or maybe maybe they're French or maybe they're German right or you ever met people who ah, I'm from a 17 you know centuries of, 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 of Baptist. Baptist 
I used to have, I used to pastor Baptist church. People used to leave books on my office desk, prop them up on the door. The trail of blood. How you could trace the roots of the Baptist all the way back to Jesus. Very proud of that heritage. Or maybe, you know, you come from a long line of Catholics and you're very proud of that. Or your, your great-great-great-grandfather was a Methodist pastor and your great-great-grandfather and your great-grandfather and your dad. All Methodist pastors and you're so proud of that heritage. You know, your dad, your granddad, your great-granddad. Nothing wrong with being proud of your heritage. But see, the Jew counted on his or her heritage and that was a problem. Second, Paul tells us that a Jew relied on the law. It says this, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law, now we talk a lot about the law. What exactly is the law? That's a, that's a reference to the Torah, sometimes called the Pentateuch. Penta means five, tuk means books. It literally means the five books of Moses. It's the first five books of the Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These books were written by a Jew, Moses. They were written for the Jews. And the Jews felt that since they had the law, it was just for them that it was going to give them a right standing before God. They were going to be declared righteous. But third, a Jew relied on God being a Jewish God. Look what it says in verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, and you boast in God. And understand, from here through the remainder of chapter 2, Paul addresses these three points. And his purpose is very, very simple. It's to show us that you can be very, very self-righteous. You can even be very, very religious. And you can still be very, very lost. So Paul, who is a Jew, he addresses this head on. And he says that there's no amount of tradition, there's no amount of religion that's going to impress God. Your confirmation doesn't impress God. Your baptism doesn't impress God. The fact that you've taken Holy Communion doesn't impress God. Or that you went to confession. Your giving record doesn't impress God. Your church attendance doesn't impress. Nothing you can do in your human flesh is going to impress God, is going to put you back into a right standing with God. That's what Paul's point is. And Paul gives us three facts about the Jew. It's true of all self-righteous religious people. First of all, a Jew is proud of what he possesses, namely the law. Look what it says in verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, and he said for the Jew, basically it, relate, it resulted in four things. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children. In other words, people who were first century Jews, they looked at people who weren't Jews with the attitude, these people are immature, they need my instruction. These people are in darkness, they need my light. These people are blind, they need me as a guide. These people are foolish, they need me to correct them. Now let's be honest, I grew up Baptist, we do the same thing. Right? Catholics do the same thing. Last week after my message, someone came out and corrected me about my misinterpretation of saints. By the way, his had nothing to do with the Bible. But it had everything to do with what the Catholic Church thought, see? We do that all the time. We feel like we've got to instruct, we've got to enlighten, we've got to guide, we've got to correct. I, Gary Vets here. I was riding with him yesterday and I was checking my email. This is what the first line of one of my emails said. I am not attempting to burden you, however, to enlighten you. Let's be realistic, shall we? Delete. I didn't even read it. 
Wasn't even interested. Sorry if you're here and you sent it to me, but okay, just want to say that. But my point is, we, don't we love to straighten people out? Don't we love to enlighten people? You know, notice how Paul handles it in verse 21. He says this, let me ask you some questions. First of all, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? I mean, you're still teaching yourself trying to figure this stuff out, right? Second, you who preach against stealing, do you still? Remember what the, what, Paul, what, what the Old Testament said to the Jews? Do you rob God? And they're thinking, no, we don't rob God. You don't pay your tithe. You rob God, right? Third, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Fourth, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Fifth, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? You know what Paul is saying? You do a really good job of talking the talk, but when it comes to walking the walk, you stink. You're horrible. So Paul says, this is not about what you do. You've got to look at your heart. You've got to be honest about what's really going on in your life. But they were very, very proud of the fact that they possessed the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Second, a Jew trusted in what he did. And again, let's be honest, all religious people do that. Look what it says in verse 25. Circumcision. Hello. Welcome to church. Right? <laughs> Circumcision. You say, Mike, what about the kids? Two words. Kid city. Kid city. Okay. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. Now, let me try to help you feel a little more at ease with that word. It's kind of a deli delicate subject, no pun intended there. But I will say this. For the first century Jews, circumcision was a ritual that conformed Jew as a Jew. Kind of went down like this. Eight days after birth, a Jewish male was taken to a priest. The priest would circumcise that child. But it was a part of their tradition. It was a part of their heritage. But it's interesting, if you read the Bible, God refers to circumcision in some unusual ways. He refers to an uncircumcised heart. An uncircumcised lip. An uncircumcised ear. Well, wait a second, that makes no sense with what we know about circumcision. Why would God do that? Because you got to understand, circumcision was meant to be more than just a religious rite. Circumcision for the Jew was meant to be an expression of faith. Now, unfortunately for the first century Jew, circumcision had become an end in itself. So Paul addresses it in verse 25, and he says this. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, and I think Paul's implying, let's be honest, all Jews break the law. If you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Let me try to give an example this way. The label on this can says to the world that there are petite diced tomatoes in this can. And I just realized, I hope Lard did not need this can of petite diced tomatoes this weekend. But anyway, it says to the world, Petite diced tomatoes are in this can. It means absolutely nothing to the world, though, if that's not what's in this can. I mean, if you open up this can, there's peaches. That label means absolutely nothing. It's kind of the same way for those of us who go to Hope Community Church. Maybe you've been baptized. You know what we say here at Hope Community Church? Baptism's like a wedding ring. It doesn't save you. Or a wedding ring doesn't marry you. It says that you're married. Baptism doesn't save you. It sends a message to the world. 
I have been saved. I have received the gospel. I have accepted what Jesus Christ has done in my life. This is nothing more than an outward demonstration of a transformation that has taken place inwardly. But if you get baptized and that's your label, but nothing has really changed inwardly, that baptism means absolutely nothing. You see, the Jew came along and said, I'm circumcised. God's going to accept me as being righteous. I'm going to be in a right standing before God. Paul says, don't count on it. Mm -mm. God doesn't accept labels. He's concerned about what's on the inside. Great verse, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. I'm going to do a whole series on this when, 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 when the fall, when I get back after Labor Day. Because I want to talk about what does God really look for in our lives. Now, we know what impresses mankind. Oh, you got to put him on your board. He's a CEO. Or you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta give them a position. They give a lot of money. We know what mankind looks at. We know what we're impressed by, right? What impresses God? We're gonna look at that in this series. But this is what it says in 1 Samuel 16, verse seven. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, God is not impressed by what you do outwardly. God is impressed by who you are inwardly. Which brings up the third, the Jew counts on who he is. Look what it says, verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. In other words, you're not a Jew of faith. You don't have a right standing before God just because you've been circumcised any more than a Baptist or a Catholic has a right standing before God just because they've been baptized. By the way, being a Jew means that you're a descendant of Abraham, but being a Jew of faith, in other words, being a Jew that has a right standing before God means that you had the faith of Abraham in your heart. So it wasn't just an outward thing, it was an inward thing. Do you remember that great scene when God told Abraham that he was going to be the father of the Jewish nation? But Abraham, he's getting old in age, and Sarah, they have no children whatsoever. Do you remember Abraham's response? Look what it says, Genesis chapter 15, verse 3. Abram, this is before God changed his name to Abraham. Abram said, it's a great idea that I'm going to be the father of a nation, but you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He, God, took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now look at this. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as what? Righteousness. Abraham believed God and God said, you have a right standing. He believed what God had promised and God stamped across his life, righteous. Right standing before God. Now go back to Romans chapter two, verse 28. Paul says this, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. In other words, again, it's not about the externals. By the way, here's the problem with religious people. They love the externals. See, religious people love things like church membership. You ever had somebody remind you of how long they've been a member of their church? I've been a member of this church. That's very important to religious people. You know, the Southern Baptists used to give out a pen. If you attended church all 52 weeks of the year, you got a little pen that you could wear on your lapel. And if you got it a second year, it would attach to the bottom of that pin. And you could actually get a long chain of pins for all the years you'd, I mean, you got like six feet of pins, hey? <laughs> Very impressed by those kinds of things, see? 
That's the religious person. Their faith is in what they do. But Paul wants us to understand that kind of outward stuff is useless when it comes to having a relationship with God. In fact, verse 29, no. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Now notice the contrast. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code, not by the law, not by following all the rules. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This is what Paul is saying. It's his way of saying, you cannot rely on who you are. You cannot rely on your pedigree. You cannot rely on your heritage, and you certainly cannot rely on what you do. Every one of us, we're all sinners before God, equally in need. And then in closing, Paul has two truths. For anybody, I think, who really is impressed with how religious they are, their self-righteousness, here's the first one you need to know. Religion is a curse, not a cure. In other words, religion will not do what you think it will do. Religion will not get you where you want to go. You know what it's like? It's like jumping out of a plane and strapping on a bag of cement when you think you're strapping on a, a parachute, right? You can jump out of that plane with a bag of cement on your back and you can pull all the cords you want to. It is not gonna work. It is not going to save you. And understand, religion is the same way. It is a curse. It is not a cure. You can be the most religious person in the hell and on the earth, and you will just blow hell wide open. Paul wants you to understand that. Second, Christianity is trusting Jesus, not self. I think it is the single most misunderstood fact of the gospel. Christianity is trusting Jesus, not self. This is the gospel. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again to save sinners. And the lost person must accept that gift by faith, plus nothing, just faith. Religion says this. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Now get to work. And if you work really, really hard, and if you do all the right things, you will find God's favor, and he will accept you. But you gotta understand, a real Christian, a real believer understands it is not about me and it's not about what I do. It's all about Jesus and what Jesus has already done. John the Baptist got it right. This is what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. I like the old translation better. He must increase and I must decrease. You either have a relationship with Jesus Christ or you have a relationship with religion. But you can't have both. It's either one or the other. Let's pray together. As you bow your heads, let me just, again, remind you that God is not impressed by what you do. He is impressed by who you are. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. I think this is the most important question you can ever work through in your life. And the question is this. If I were to die today, and if I were to stand before God, and if God were to ask me, why should I let you into heaven? What's your answer going to be? 
And I would just tell you this, if it's any other answer other than the fact that I trusted in the gospel, I trusted in Jesus Christ, your son, and what he did for me. Any other answer than that will not be the answer God is looking for. If you hadn't gotten to the place in your life where you're ready to surrender and submit to God through what Jesus has done for you and accept that free gift of salvation, you may be very, very religious, but I'm just telling you as a friend, you are very, very lost. And I would encourage you when the service is over, whatever campus you're at, just go to the next step counter. I guarantee you someone would love to sit down with you and share with you the gospel so this weekend this could be settled once and for all. Father, we thank you for doctrinal books like the book of Romans, the most doctrinal book in the Bible. But it reminds us of some very, very important truths. Because if we're not careful, we can get caught up in things like confirmation, baptism, doing certain things, saying certain things, serving and giving, and we can think that somehow by doing what we do that we will impress you and you will put us back into a right standing before you. But Father, help us understand as we're gonna see next week that until we are seen in your son, Jesus Christ, we cannot have a relationship with you. We can't be restored back to you. Our sins cannot be forgiven. We don't get the promise of eternal life when we die. And we don't get the power to live the life that you've called us to now on this earth. Help us as we work through this series to make sure we understand what it means to be righteous, to have a right standing before you. And I thank you for what you're gonna do in all of our hearts as we learn some very and very important doctrinal truth, but yet at the same time, Father, it explodes in our hearts and mind and it becomes reality as to how we relate to you and you relate to us. So we thank you now for what we're gonna learn and how our lives are gonna be changed as we continue over the next few weeks. In your name we pray, amen.